This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department's all-domain command and control concept is official tonight. Joint Staff J-6 and Chief Information Officer Lieutenant General Dennis Crawl says Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin approved it in May. NextGov reports initial priorities include data standards, software development, network enhancements, and zero-trust architecture. The Defense Information Systems Agency will roll out its new identity, credentialing, and access management tool across the Pentagon within the next year. DISA Cloud Officer User Engagement Officer Lieutenant Colonel Pete Godby says the new capability will let the department use biometrics and other multi-factor authentication tools. FedScoop reports Godby calls the tool a, quote, global directory that will offer the department a central pool to identify users. The Homeland Security Department's continuous diagnostics and mitigation programs behind schedule, according to a new audit from the agency's Office of Inspector General. Those delays left the department vulnerable to cyber attacks. FCW reports the IG office did the audit between August 2019 and August 2020. Three top White House nominees for DHS will prioritize cybersecurity initiatives if the Senate confirms them. The confirmation hearing for the three nominees happened just a couple of weeks after several high-level cyber attacks. Chris Kemiski is CEO of Kemiski Strategic Solutions. He's former acting undersecretary at DHS. Chris, welcome. It's great to see you again. What did you, you take away from their hearing? You obviously uh, on LinkedIn endorsed these three nominees uh, as, as eminently qualified for their jobs. What was your takeaway from the hearing and what they bring to the department? Well, thanks for having me. I think that the, the most important thing that came out of the hearing was the, the heavy focus on cybersecurity. Uh, not all those positions have direct uh, authority over that uh, particular set of issues, uh, but the one thing that did come through from the deputy secretary, the head of policy, and the uh, general counsel positions was all a focus on uh, cybersecurity and making sure the department's ready to handle the challenges ahead. One of the th things that I've talked to a number of current former DHS officials about over the years, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, not inferring these were your sentiments, but the issue is over the years has been whether Congress is asking the right questions about cyber. Are we there yet? Is Congress asking the right questions in confirmation hearings and in other, in, in other settings about the cyber posture of the federal government and its interaction with the private sector? I think they're much more attuned to it now on the Hill than they have been in past cycles. Uh, this time around, you know, the, the members were very active. Uh, the staff is highly prepared uh, to engage in this dialogue. And the fact that you have a, a, a series of high-profile uh, uh, cyber attacks uh, certainly is, I think, pushing this dialogue along uh, so that every nominee uh, of the 20 uh, DHS to require Senate confirmation are probably going to be asked about cybersecurity. What are the right things for Congress to focus on that maybe it's not right now? Obviously, there are the high-profile incidents, um, the issues that, about uh, CDM and all those kinds of things. Is there something out there, though, that maybe they're not focusing on that they should? Well, I think certainly the major programs of record, uh, CDM and Einstein, are the two big uh, uh, cyber programs at DHS, uh, about a billion dollars between them in annual spending. Uh, but beyond that, I think it's really this notion of communication and coordination uh, with the reestablishment of the White House cyber position, 
uh, as well as a, a new deputy uh, at uh, the National Security Council focused solely on cyber. Uh, you've got a lot of chefs in the kitchen mixing this up. And so I think one of the things you're gonna find that the deputy secretary and, and certainly the head of policy at DHS are going to have to spend their time on is this coordination among the major players, not only at the White House, but the FBI, NSA, and other uh, major uh, players. That's a good thing about having a national cyber director, though, isn't it, Chris? That's that person's primary responsibility, and that's what that person will be charged with, making sure that all those chefs are cooking the right dishes, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so you, you've got to have people on the receiving end of that as well. And so having folks in senior levels, not only at DHS, but across the interagency, makes it more likely that they'll be successful in responding to these attacks. So you mentioned something that I think is interesting. These nominees that we're talking about, you can read more about them at, uh, at govmatters.tv slash resources. They're not all three of them directly responsible for cyber. They don't have cyber written into their job descriptions. But cyber's really written into, in some form, the portfolio of everybody in high-level management at DHS now, isn't it? Yeah, that's really a good point. I think that there, there's a finally a recognition that everyone's got a hand in this. And so whether you're the chief operating officer, which is the deputy secretary, uh, the general counsel, or the, the head of policy, you're going to have a hand in this uh, across uh, DHS and the 240,000 people that work for the department. And so I think that's really going to be in the forefront uh, for every person. When I say it's an all-hands-on-deck approach, as I've said in the past, I really believe that's going to be the case this time. What would, what do these roles look like, and, and what does an organization like CISA look like two years from now, halfway through the Biden administration, or at the end of the Biden administration, the first term at least, in 2024-25? What do those organizations look like? How do they mature in your view? Well, and that's a really good question because CISA is only really two years old uh, in its, since its inception. And so I think if you look into the future, uh, it'll be much, much more muscular in terms of regulatory oversight responsibilities, uh, working with the TSAs who just recently issued uh, pipeline guidance and requirements, uh, and across the 16 critical infrastructure sectors, uh, I think you're gonna see CISA be much more active uh, utilizing the authorities that they've been given in recent years by Congress. And that's gonna mean having oversight from internal functions as well, like the deputy secretary, uh, legal counsel, uh, and the chief of policy, in this case, Rob Silvers, who has a, a long uh, history of working on cyber issues. Uh, so I think you're gonna be seeing a much more aggressive stance uh, coming out of the agencies in the federal government that deal with this directly. And that coordination that we talked about with the National Cyber Director, it strikes me, is important for all of these people within DHS, too, because you mentioned the TSA uh, pipeline authority. CISA exists. There's the DHS CIO that has oversight over the agencies. There's the individual uh, component agencies' uh, operations and, and all of that. Um, there's a lot of cybersecurity, secret service. There's a lot of cybersecurity happening a lot of different places all across this agency, right? That's absolutely true. And the way you maximize effectiveness is to really get all those uh, agencies and component heads uh, and the headquarters working in concert with one another. So that's going to be a big part of it is making sure that CISA's guidance is being implemented by the DHS CIO, that the secret service in their efforts around cybersecurity are coordinated. And so it's really a big task for these three nominees, as well as the others that will be coming down the pipe. Chris Kemiski, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back on the program. Thanks, Francis. Coming next, crunch time for a return to the office. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a new deadline coming for agencies. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. Federal agencies have to finalize their return to office plans by July 19th at the request of the White House. The Safer Federal Workforce Task Force asks agencies to include phased reentry schedules and safety measures into their plans. Jeff Neal is former Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Jeff, thanks for coming on the program. How detailed do you think these return to office plans need to be, both for the administration and to demonstrate, to, to instill confidence in the employees that the agencies want to come back? Hi, Francis. I, I think they're going to have to get into quite a few details. You know, they're going to need to look at the technology they're going to use to, to have people working remotely, if that's going to be happening. They're going to have to look at what they're considering as far as who goes, who gets to stay home, who has to come in to work uh, in the office, how many days a week might they have to go into the office, what's the agency going to do to ensure the safety of the employees, because you know, for all, there are still a lot of people who have not been vaccinated and don't seem to want to be, and that's causing concern for federal employees. So I think they're going to need to go into a lot of details and they're probably going to need to include how they're going to adapt as they learn because the odds of getting this 100% right on you know on day 1 is you know the odds are probably not great. A lot of these are going to be art more than science, aren't they? These are going they, organizations are not going to be able to do these cookie cutter style, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This is this is one of those areas where one size definitely does not fit all. Agencies are going to have to do this based on their mission, on their workforce, on where the employees are located, on what kind of technology they have available for remote working and for, for working together as teams. So this is, is definitely not one size fits all. You said the last time you were on something that you alluded to a moment ago, Jeff, and that is that there's a distinct possibility um, that these plans will not go smoothly, that there will be bumps in the road, that there will be challenges, that there will be problems. What should organizations be doing now, the human capital organizations, to at least try to mitigate those, to, to try to make them as minimal as possible? Well, the first thing they need to do is to, to communicate that very idea to everyone, that what's implemented uh, over the next few months is not the final state, that they know they're going to have to learn, they know that things may not go as they plan. They don't really know what's going to happen when hundreds of thousands of employees re-enter a workplace that they haven't been in for, in many cases, more than a year. So they need to communicate that things are 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 going to be changing as they go. So that, that's probably number one. And the number two is to make certain they provide the right support to the managers who are trying to manage in a, a hybrid work environment that most of them really had no experience in until the pandemic. And and that's gonna be a really big a big issue, I think, for a lot of people. And then the other issue with the remote work environment and people not having experience with it before the pandemic, they knew it was out there and didn't want it. A lot of the mid-level managers I, I still hear um, are have not been crazy about the idea throughout COVID, but had to grin and bear it. What implication does that potentially have for these plans and the desire of a lot of folks to continue to work remotely, especially if they don't feel safe still coming back? Well, I, I think you're right, Francis, that there were a lot of people who just didn't like the idea of telework, and they argued that telework wouldn't work. Um, I think we've pretty well proven that, that that basic premise is wrong, that telework does work. The question is how well it works and how how expansive you want it to be. 
But the people who did not like telework before, uh, many of them still don't like it. And what they're going to do is they're going to look for every reason they can possibly find to say, well, see, we, we're, we're showing you it doesn't work. And we need to go back to, to, you know, to what we did pre-pandemic. And I don't think that there's much of a chance of going back to where we were pre, pre-pandemic. It's just not going to happen. But we're also probably not going to stay where we are right now with the degree of telework that we have. And agencies need to find a balance that works for, for the agency, for its mission, and for the workforce. Keeping in mind that, that a lot of people are offering telework in uh, pretty large amounts of time now. And if you're in a high demand occupation where you've got lots of opportunities for where to work, if an agency isn't offering the kind of work schedule you want, uh, don't be surprised if you see employees uh, walking down to the next agency or out to the private sector where they can get a work schedule and a work arrangement that, that works for them. We just have a couple of minutes left, Jeff. You and I have spoken about uh, interagency and intercomponent coordination. I'm going to put you back in your DHS Chico seat for a moment. Mm-hmm. What's the implication for components with different plans, but where those employees have to interact with each other? And then maybe take that to the agency level where different agencies have different comeback plans and they're trying to interact with each other. What's that, what does effective collaboration look like on that level, Jeff? Uh, we're not quite sure yet, I think. Uh, you know, we know that we have means of people communicating via things like Zoom or Teams or WebEx or any of these other video conferencing platforms. But how does that that, that doesn't necessarily replace a lot of the interactions with people that happen because these things have to be scheduled and you're not just going to run into somebody and you're not going to you know, bump into somebody from another agency in the same building you're in and have a conversation and solve a problem. So that's going to be an issue. Um, you do have the issue of, of not everyone having compatible technology. So, you know, we might be using one piece of technology and other agencies using another one. And that just adds a little bit of a complication. It's, it's certainly you know, something you can overcome, but that adds a little bit of complication. But I, I think you're going to find that that they have to find ways to work through this. And some of them are going to probably struggle with that. It's, it's just not going to be the easiest thing in the world. They, they've clearly been able to find solutions in the last year that at least on an interim basis were workable. Whether or not they conclude that those things are workable you know, for the next five years, I think is a, a, an open question right now. Jeff Neal, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back on the program. Thanks for having me. Up next, 100 proposals for billions of dollars. Straight ahead on Government Matters, managing the proposal flow to get the biggest bang for the country's bucks. Don't forget if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Federal Chief Information Officer Claire Martorana says the Technology Modernization Fund Board received almost 100 project proposals for funding. The TMF Board will begin reviewing those proposals this month. Dave Wintergren's Chief Executive Officer of the American Council for Technology and Industry Advisory Council. He's former Chief Information Officer of the Navy. Dave, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I'm going to bet 
that a lot of those proposals will involve cybersecurity. Do you expect to see some kind of triage or prioritization based on the type of project as opposed to issues like how old the legacy technology is that it would replace those kinds of things, Dave? Yes, absolutely. As you pointed out, the federal CIO has already sort of listed her set of priorities, which included, of course, cybersecurity, as well as critical mission systems and digital technology transformation and shared services. I'd pile onto that, that the last year and a half has showed us one dramatic thing, whether it's pandemic or the colonial pipeline, there is a huge need for resiliency. And resiliency today is all about adopting virtual technologies to work from anywhere, being able to do crisis management response, and of course, cybersecurity. Cybersecurity around managed services and zero trust are really important. And what I would add onto that list is also, let's not forget, we still have to finish moving to the cloud. We have to get hold of those thousands of legacy systems, and we have to do a faster implementation of emerging technologies. Things like intelligent automation and artificial intelligence are just changing the way the game plays. So yes, my fervor and hope is gonna be that we will prioritize on those topics that matter most, rather than just necessarily what comes in when. What, will you what do you think will be most different about the projects that the board approves now with a billion dollars and maybe more compared to the kinds of projects that they approve with 125 million and, and smaller amounts at times? Yeah, well, I think there's sort of two axes to that question, right? One is you could approve some bigger projects now because you have a larger sum of money to work with. But also I think there's this great imperative for speed. We approved about $100 million worth of projects over three years. It cannot take that long to get a billion dollars moving. We have to get that money flowing faster. So I think this look for how can we make a big difference quickly? If you think about it, sometimes it's easier to do smaller projects. They have less risk, but of course they have less reward. And this is really the time to start taking on those gnarly problems that are bigger and more challenging. And that's why I applaud what Claire has put out there around this idea about a government modernization plan. As long as it's focused on moving with speed, it's focused on projects that make a difference, outcomes that matter around missions, and it also is about mandating certain things take place. The Technology Modernization Fund boost is, is going to be a good thing, everybody seems to agree, for modernizing these systems. 12, 15 years ago, when I first met you and, we're and I was starting to learn this space, CIO after CIO would say, I'd love to have some vehicle for multi-year funding within my organization. Why do you think that at the same time the TMF fund has grown and people like it and it's scaling, the individual agency working capital funds have seemed to die on the vine, Dave? Yeah, there's a lot of nuances around CFO requirements and statutory things. Um, those agencies that have working capital funds love them and recognize this idea about revolving funds that don't make you have to do everything in one year and don't have limitations about how much money can be spent on certain types of things are super helpful. There are some agencies that are limited in their ability to have them, but you're, you're spot on. More agencies have to uh, have to get with the program and, and take advantage of these ways to make money last longer and be able to change how money is spent to suddenly decide you wanna move from developing software code to buying something off the shelf or buying a managed service which uses different kinds of appropriate I continue to hear a worry, back to the TMF uh, process, I continue to hear a worry that people say, all right, we, we submit our proposal, project's approved, we get the money, is our acquisition operation going to be ready 
to do this kind of acquisition. What's your sense of what the best practices are out there to make sure that the acquisition teams are ready to proceed with the speed that they will need to? Because there's going to be pressure, even with the change in the repayment uh, process, it seems to me there's going to be pressure to get that money back to the fund. You are spot on, Francis. I mean, at the end of the day, the money in the federal IT budget ends up getting spent with the private sector. We have to get the acquisition process right. We have to remind ourselves that acquiring information technology in the 21st century looks radically different than how we did major systems acquisitions in the 20th century. Uh, we've talked about this before. We need to encourage and incentivize innovation, statements of objectives, valuing alternative proposals, demanding innovation, and then looking for and rewarding that we find it. You know, there is a lot of innovation going on all around us. Recently, ACT-IA gave out its 2021 Innovation Awards. We had almost 170 nominations come in from industry and government. Real-world solutions that are working in spaces like public safety, COVID response, healthcare, use of robots, robotic process automation, artificial intelligence, and data. You are not alone. There are solutions out there that you could take advantage of and use in your own agency. But we have to make sure that we have acquisition processes in place that make that happen quickly and effectively and engage industry in their ideas rather than just demanding an outcome without talking about how your best practices come into play. 30 seconds less, so very quickly. Is that the most important thing in this entire equation, maybe, to look around and see what somebody else is doing and just copy it instead of reinventing the wheel? Absolutely. There are great ideas. You know, the, the private sector is doing things with commercial clients and we could use those solutions inside of government. So, yes, steal liberally from others. Don't try to just go on your own. Dave Wintergren, thanks as always. It's great to see you. Francis, it is an honor sharing this stage with you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology, 
um, for 20 years. And, and basically this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract. GSA has got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.